Um, hey, 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10. We are walking through the Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles for uh, a while. We will be doing this for a while. Uh, our hope in this series is just called Prophets and Kings. We just want to see the story of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, this might not be surprising. This might be surprising. We believe the gospel is not just preached in the book of Matthew, but in the book of Genesis. We believe we have these little shadows, these little hints, these little whiffs of that seems like messianic. That seems like a type of Christ. This story reminds me of another story, maybe from the Gospels. And there's something about that. We want to also get familiar with the Old Testament. We want to know our history. We want to know our roots. We want to know the story and timeline of Israel and how that led to the Messiah coming. And so this idea of, of Samuel is a great introduction to that. Um, so we're working our way through 1 Samuel. We're, we're now in chapter 10. If you are with us last week, remember that the, kind of the scene changed from Samuel to Saul. So in chapter 9, Saul is introduced. Saul is the one who is told he would be king. And in chapter 9, we saw like this introduction to Saul. He's tall. He's handsome. He's wealthy. I mean, he's everything that people want, right? And we see also now Samuel meet him and like speak over him and say, I know this is who you are, but this is who you're going to be. And right, like we ended at chapter 9, right before chapter 10, verse 1, we're going to see Samuel anoint Saul to be king. So I'm, I'm catching up to speed because last week we kind of looked at the text in this way. Uh, Saul, who was he? Who will he be? How do you get there? So we kind of looked at the idea, just stay with me. We looked at the idea of like your identity. Like who are you now? But who has Christ called you to be? And how do you get there? Now we want to look at today in chapter 10 and 11. We're going to see this idea of, of God trying to say, uh, Saul, here's how you can know you are called. So this is your identity, like last week was like identity. This week is like, how do you know? How do you know you're called? How did Saul know that he was truly called to be king? This guy, this prophet says you're going to be king, but is that enough? Like, how does he know? And so God is going to show him through signs, through miracles, through people affirming him, through battles. Uh, there's going to be a lot of these signs say, here's how you can know you are called. God is making his calling sure. He's making it confident. He said, here's how you can know you're called. And it is a good Father's Day message. It's about kingship, ripping people's eyeballs out, as we'll read, and battles. All right, war. So that's a Father's Day message. There you go, dads. Um, kingship, eyes popping out, and war. Great, great message. Um, but here's the, really the main idea, which is how to know you're called. How do you know you're called? God, you might read, like last week, God speaks over us certain truths that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things have been made new. You are image bearers of God. You're, you're children of God. There's all these different identity statements spoken over you that you are now missionaries, ambassadors of Christ. But it's like, okay, well, how do I know? Like, how do we know? And there's very similar signs. We're going to see some like miraculous Holy Spirit-filled moments that affirm Saul to be king. That we, I think there are parallels for our lives, how we know we're called. We see the idea of the Spirit being involved. We see people affirming it. And we see the trials in our lives that solidify so often that call. So that's kind of how we're going to break this down and look at this today. Um, we are just a heads up, right? So you're going to be stressed out by this. It's okay. We can do this. We're going to do two chapters today. <gasps> I know. Like, oh, really? Yeah. It's more reading. Less, less of my comments, more of God's word. Cool? Yeah? You're like, I don't believe you. I know. Um, but First Samuel chapter 10. This is where we're at. Um, let me just kind of put this up here so you kind of follow the theme, because this is really bizarre for us who are maybe like, wasn't it just Saul anointed king and that's how it works? There's kind of four stages to Saul being anointed king, just so you can kind of see this. There's a secret anointing by Samuel. We kind of were introduced to that last week and see that fulfilled in verse 1. There's a personal confirmation by signs. There's a public selection, selection by lots. And then there's this victorious confirmation by the people, meaning after the war is over, there's like another confirmation. There's just over and over again, God's confirming, this is my guy. This is supposed to be the king. And I want us to, to kind of see this because even though Saul has his issues, we're kind of seeing like Saul is one of those complicated characters. It's like, is he good? Is he bad? We kind of see how it plays out. But again, we're kind of learning from his story. There's some elements that are really good there. Like God has truly called Saul to be king. But also we're going to see kind of some holes in his story. And even more next week than we get after, we're going to see where he starts to get it wrong a little bit more. So 1 Samuel chapter 10. Why don't we pray? Um, because it's a lot of reading today. And we'll just kind of pray. Sweet? Yes? Happy Father's Day. You guys good? Ready? All right, sweet. Let's do that. Father, um, we just want to thank you. I want to thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you, God, that um, though just as David said in Psalm 27, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will not forsake me. That thank you, God, that even when uh, we've just experienced maybe the, the, the painful side 
of just dads who've been absent, who haven't been there, that God, you are just ever present. We thank you that you are faithful when we're faithless. God, we thank you that you can redeem that word, Father, for us. We thank you that you told us when we pray to say our Father in heaven, that that is how you want to be addressed. So we just come to you in that manner, God, that you are our Father. We say thank you. And God, we ask as we just go through your word, as we read about Saul and just how he was appointed to be king, God, that you would reveal to us um, just really our calling, that you would affirm to us the calling you've given us, that everyone in this room has a calling on their life, that everyone in this room is called to be an ambassador for you, that is called to be light amongst darkness. And God, I ask that we would just really fit and play into that calling, that we not fight the calling, that we would not run from the calling, but that Jesus, your, your will would be done in us. In just your wonderful name, amen. Amen. Uh, it was my junior year of high school. It was in the summer of going into my junior year. And that year, my sophomore going into my junior year, I'm sorry to say this, it was an, it's another basketball story, but that was like my main time of my life where like I just had, I was grinding, that was like my season. I loved basketball at that time. And it was going to my junior year, this guy named Daniel, sweetest kid ever, he's on our basketball team, he's going to be a senior, and he was supposed to be captain that year because we only had like a couple of seniors. And I remember Daniel pulled me aside like right before the start of the school year, and he's just the nicest guy, and he was so encouraging, he goes, Josiah, I just want to say like, listen, you worked really hard this summer, uh, to all be honest, I don't really want to be captain, I'm going to step aside, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like let the team know that like, I'm asking if we can kind of have you be captain. And he told me, he said, hey, the coach though wants to take a vote on if you can be captain or not, all right? So, like, uh, I, I'm, I recommend your name. He said, okay, let's just ask the team, because mostly it was reserved for seniors, but we're going to have a junior maybe a captain. And I was like, wow, what an honor. That is so exciting. Like, oh, my gosh, thank you, Daniel. That's so kind of you. And I remember going into that practice afterwards, the coach that gathers the team, and he's like, all right, so uh, Daniel here humbly wants to step aside and uh, let Josiah be captain, but we are going to take a vote. And it's the most bizarre thing. And this is what happened. And he goes to the team and says, so all in favor say yay, all in favor say nay. All right, one, two, three. And you hear a bunch of yays, and then one like nay, like one nay. And the coach says, oh, I think I heard a name. Just thought we're going to have to put you on hold. Uh, we're not going to vote anymore. Uh, we're going to figure this out later. Uh, practice is dismissed. I was like, what just happened? Now, I, I knew who said nay. Oh, I knew who said nay. And I remember going to Lawrence. Um, I remember going up to him. I'm like, dude, what was that? He's like, bro, I don't know. He's like, and I, like, we were friends, you know? Like, I'm like, I thought we were friends at least. And I'm like, bro, what was that? He's like, I don't know, no juniors or captains. I just didn't think it was right. Like, he should stay captain. I'm like, okay. <laughs> now, that moment has stuck with me, and I, there was never a follow-up. It just ended like that, by the way. Uh, Daniel ended up being captain, which was kind of cool. I'm like, all right, but I was so, I'm obviously, it's like 20 years later, still bitter right? Like I was 16 or something at that time. Uh, but it's funny, all, that was supposed to be like the confirmation of something that was told to me. I'm going to step aside, you're going to be that. This is really, this chapter 10, 11 is like the confirmation of Saul being king. There is this private conversation between Samuel and Saul. He's anointed king, as we're going to read in verse one. And then there's like this public, like, do we all affirm this? Do we all confirm this? Yes. How do we know? And I want to point this out because really put yourself in a second in Saul's sandals. Like, think about this. All right. Um, if someone came to you, let's just even say someone with authority said, hey, I have some crazy news. You are going to be the king or the queen of England. <laughs> You're like, and I know this might sound crazy, but I mean, it's you. Like, no one knows yet, but it's you. You're like, I'm not even British. How does this work? Like, it'd be the weirdest thing ever. But now, like, for that to, for you even to, even to believe that, you're like, okay, even if you're a per person of importance, like, this has to be affirmed and confirmed in some ways. Like, do the people, are the citizens behind this? Will they be behind this? Once they hear my name, are they going to fight this? Like, this would be really difficult to kind of get through your head. Like, you're Saul. You're just a Benjamin. You're a kid who's, you know, his parents are wealthy. But that's, that's all you know. Like, no, no desire for this. This prophet says you're going to be king. And it's kind of like this moment, chapter 10 and 11, are these stories of God showing him, listen, I called you, and I will affirm this calling over your life. And so we are going to use this story in kind of that way, and I want you to just kind of stay with me. Because how do we know we're called? How do we know we're called? Even in the New Testament, we're told to make our calling and election sure. How do we know we're called? And I really think there are some parallels between Saul's story, God affirming his calling, and how God can affirm our calling today. You with me? So here's the three points we're going like to walk through. And here's going to break up the, the text into three big sections. The first section is God, he will affirm the call. God affirms the call. Then the people confirm that call. And then there's trials that will test the call. Or another way, like trials solidify the call. And I think these are very similar uh, just things in our life. How do we know that we're called? God will affirm that call. People should also confirm the calling on your life. Speak into that. 
And then there should also be trials that really make that calling sure. You're like, oh, wow, I can see that. Makes sense looking back. So, two chapters. <laughs> you ready? All right, you guys can do this. I promise. Let's read. Chapter 10, verse 1. Uh, here's God affirming the call. So, chapter 10, verse 1. It says, then Samuel, so remember, they had this private conversation. They just had food. They just had dinner. They just had uh, the word of God is about to be spoken over him. It says, then Samuel, he took a flask of oil, and he poured it on Saul's head. And he kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people. Sorry. You shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of the surrounding enemies. All right. So first thing, before you kind of dive into this, then we're going to see the signs. But Saul or Samuel pulls Saul aside, and he anoints him with oil. Now, this was a common practice. They'd anoint priests and prophets with oil. This is the first king, so it's like introducing this idea of kings also being anointed with oil. Obviously, it was not so much about the oil being poured out in your head. Like, other cultures and other uh, civilizations had similar practices, but for, for Jewish people, for us as Christians, the oil was symbolic for, God, fill me with your spirit. Like, overflow me with your spirit. There was that kind of idea for priests, for prophets, and now for kings, that there would be this like filling of the Holy Spirit. John picked up on this theme in 1 John 2 20 and said it this way. He says, but you, speaking of believers, have an anointing from the Holy One. There is this idea of us that God has anointed you with his spirit. God has called you. God has separated you for work, for a purpose. So this idea of being anointed with oil as well, I mean, is obviously incredibly memorable. You know, it's like you're just covered in oil. It's like dripping down from your head. It, this was done in secret. I just think so often God will do things in secret before he do, does things publicly. This is what took place. So no one knows at this point that uh, Saul is going to be king. This is a private ceremony. It will be public in a little bit, but this is a private ceremony. And I just think before there's like that public kind of expectation, a lot of times the Lord does things in private first. So here's this private little ceremony. It's going to be public soon. This is a very memorable moment. And this is what he says specifically over him. Look at this in verse 1 again. He says, he says, to be prince over his heritage. Or a better word is actually to be prince over his inheritance. Again, I pointed this out last week, but both times, Saul is not called the king. In the Hebrew, that'd be Melech. It's this word, Najid, which is like prince. You're gonna be prince. The people want a king, but they're getting a prince. God is saying this word a couple different times to remind them, hey, I'm the true king. Don't forget who's really the true king here. Like, yes, Saul will be king. But there's this reminder a couple of different times, I'm the true king, you're going to be the prince. And there is that reminder of like, we might not think that we have as much authority as we have. Like God is the one who's truly, who has all authority. He's the true king. And so he's reminding him, you're going to be prince over the people. Now, here's what he's going to say in verse 1. At the end of verse 1, he's going to say, and here's the signs. So there's going to be some signs now to affirm this. So we're going to read the rest of the text. All right, verse 1, the end of verse 1, all the way through verse 16. Let's read. Here's what he says. He says, and this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found. And now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a skin of wine. And they will uh, greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gilbeth Elohim, the hill of God, uh, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp and tambourine and flute and lyre and before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. So key, verse seven. Now, these signs meet, now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to, to you to offer burnt offerings and a sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. Verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, so right after this, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to uh, Gabeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. 
And when uh, all who knew him previously saw, saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has overcome over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And, a man of the place, and the man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Verse 14, Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, where did you go? And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when, he, when we saw that they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about that, that matter of the kingdom of which Saul had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Whew, take a deep breath. All right, a lot going on there. Basically, uh, Samuel anoints Saul with oil and says, here's how you can know you are to be king. And he gives him a few different signs, prophetic signs, miraculous signs. He's like, you can know that you're called to be king because some of these things are going to happen. We'll put this up here to kind of see the three things. Two men will meet him at Rachel's tomb to tell him the lost donkeys. Three men will meet him at Bethel to offer him bread. A group of prophets will meet him at Gibeah with whom Saul will prophesy with. All right, so stay with me. He gives him a few signs. Here's how you can know. First, he says you're going to meet some men at Rachel's tomb uh, to tell the donkeys are safe. Now, remember the story last week in chapter 9, the, donkey, the donkeys went missing. He's looking for the donkeys. God used the donkeys to bring uh, Saul to Samuel. He, and like, listen, the donkeys are safe. Stop worrying about the donkeys. But this is the first sign. Again, if you're an anointed king, you want to know, how is this guy legit? How do I know what he's saying is going to come to pass? Imagine some random people meet you and say, hey, the donkeys are found. You're good. Now, he says, he's, you're going to meet them at Rachel's tomb. Now, just stay with me. I found this really interesting in studying this week. Who is Rachel? Do you guys remember Rachel? Rachel is the wife of Jacob. Yeah. So stay with me. There's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had a couple of different wives. Remember, he got duped. He wanted to marry Rachel, but he ends up marrying Leah. And so he ends up marrying Leah. Then seven years later, he works and he gets Rachel. He ends up having two more wives. Now, if you remember, Rachel couldn't have children. She ended up, by like a miracle and the grace of God, having Joseph. And then years later, having Benjamin. Now, remember, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. So stay with me. Uh, Rachel was a wife who Jacob really loved. We see that Jacob had all of his kids in Genesis 30, even Joseph. He had all of his kids. In Genesis 35, God's like, you're going to have one more child, and this will come from Rachel, and it'll be the son, Benjamin. Now, when Rachel's giving birth to Benjamin, Rachel passes. So she dies giving birth to Benjamin. Now, I want to read this verse to you just to kind of follow with me. It's Genesis 35, verse 11. Right before uh, he has Benjamin, here's what God says to Jacob. God said, Genesis 35, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. So he already had his kids. God is saying, a king shall come from your body. The next child they have right after this in Genesis 35 is Benjamin. So in his mind, Benjamin will be that kingly tribe. Benjamin should be the tribe where the kings come from, right? That's the idea. Because kings shall come from you. You already had your kids, but you're going to have another one. And kings shall come from you. So in his mind, the tribe of Benjamin is the tribe that will bring forth a king. But what happened? Something happened and something changed where we know Judah is supposed to be the tribe that brings forth the king. Now here's what happened. I just find this really interesting. If you remember the story of Jacob and his 12 sons and Joseph and the coat of many colors and Joseph being sold off into slavery eventually and then he ends up going to Pharaoh's house and being promoted and he's high up in the court and if you remember like there's a famine in the land, Joseph's brothers come to him needing food. Joseph recognizes his brothers. His brothers do not recognize him. Joseph sends his brothers back home and says, isn't there another one? Like bring me the youngest one. So they bring Benjamin to Joseph. They still don't know it's Joseph. Now if you remember, Joseph is basically saying, you want some food, leave the youngest with me. Leave Benjamin with me. That's like his full brother. They don't know it's Joseph yet, but leave Benjamin with me. Judah, who was one of his big brothers, goes, oh, we've already done so much harm to our dad. You know, we already basically, in their mind, killed Joseph off. The wife that he loved, Rachel, we killed off her son. We can't let the only son now of Rachel that's left. We can't leave him here. We can't do that. So Judah actually offers himself up. Listen to this. It's Genesis uh, verse 44. Genesis 44, 34. This is what Judah says. He goes, please let your servant, myself, Judah, remain instead of the lad, instead of Benjamin, as a slave to my Lord, and let that lad go up with his brothers. Here's why this is interesting. This, this moment of Judah stepping up and saying, I want to be the substitute. Don't take Benjamin. Take me. I'll be your slave. This eventually, we know, breaks Joseph's heart. And he goes, don't you know who you're talking to? It's me, your brother. It's the one you sold away. 
And it's almost what, what Joseph saw was, wow, you're willing to give me up, but now you're willing to give yourself up. Now you're willing, Judas, who's going to say this, like, take me. I'll be his substitute. Take me. Then in Genesis 49, when Jacob's prophesied over his kids, he says to Judah that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So here's what Jacob does. Benjamin was supposed to be that kingly tribe. King shall come from you. Judah's like, let me be the substitute. He can't, he can't be taken. I'll step in. And so in Jacob's mind, by that will, by that act, by that grace, he's like, you know what? You're going to be the new kingly tribe. And he prophesied over Judah, hey, you shall be the king, and everyone that comes from you shall be the king. So there's like transfer from Benjamin to Judah. Now, if you remember, obviously, we have Saul, who's from Benjamin, and he's going to have David. David will eventually be king, who's from the tribe of Judah. And just like you have this transfer from Benjamin to Judah, this is what First and Second Samuel is about, this, transformation, this, this kind of like passing it down from Benjamin to Judah. Here's why I think this is so significant. I want to put this up from one author. He said it this way. Listen to this. He says, This suggests a transition from a Benjamite monarch to a Judahite monarch. A transition which is about to be played out in 1 and 2 Samuel. But perhaps the aspect is that Judah is promised a crown only after he has offered to substitute himself for Benjamin. Like David, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. The ultimate king comes to the throne because he offers himself as a substitute for his people. There is this idea of Judas saying, I will give myself up for Joseph so he can live. There is David who says, I will go out and fight Goliath. I will offer up myself so the people can live. There is Jesus from the tribe of Judah. I will give myself up so the people can live. There is this kingly kind of thing happening where from the tribe of Judah, let me be the substitute. Benjamin, he goes, let me step in for Benjamin. Don't take Benjamin, whatever you do. Benjamin is supposed to be the kingly tribe, but now that's passed on to Judah because he was willing to offer himself up for his brother. I'm I'm bringing this up because I think this is very significant. He's saying to Benjamin, go to Rachel's tomb. Go to your great, 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 great grandmother's tomb. Go to the place, remember, like she died giving birth to your great, great, great grandfather, Benjamin. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. And it also brings up all these ideas, all this, you know, imagery of, yes, I'm supposed to be the king, Benjamin, but don't forget, it's going to come from Judah, according to Jacob. I don't know if you stuck with me. That makes sense. But I love this idea of the king being the substitute. That was what it's supposed to be. I will offer myself up for the people. Saul should have offered himself up, not little David, to go fight Goliath. But Goliath goes, I will be the substitute. Or David says, I will be the substitute. I will fight Goliath on behalf of the people. And God honors this idea of substitution, really pointing to the greater king who will be the ultimate substitute for us. And his name is Jesus. I will offer up myself for you. The thing I want to see is like there's some very significant details of places and what to do, how to live. This is all pointing to a bigger and grander story, obviously the story of Jesus. So as we're kind of walking through this, though, this was the first sign. Go to Rachel's tomb. Go to your great-grandmother's tomb. That happens. Next, hey, there's some guys that are going to meet you. They're going to have three like goats, three loaves of bread, and some wine. They're going to give you two loaves. This happens. Now, look at this. Kids are goats. I said kids, but that's, yeah, sorry, goats. That's the idea. Same thing. Uh, kids are goats. There's wine. And bread. The idea behind that, you see sacrifices, wine speaking of joy, bread speaking of provision. God is basically letting them know, listen, uh, there's going to be joy. There's going to be provision. There's going to be sacrifices. I'm providing everything you need. Wine and bread speaks of communion for us. It is such a beautiful thing of God is saying, look, there's going to be provision for you. I'm with you. This is just saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm with you in this journey. And so the next sign is these goats, these bread, this wine. The third sign he sees next, uh, it says a group of prophets will meet him. And he's going to prophesy. The Spirit's going to come upon him, and he's going to prophesy. And I want to read this again just very clearly. Look at verse 9. It says, When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. It says, God gave him another heart. See, I, the idea that the big question, how do I know I'm called? I'm Saul. God immediately gives him a new heart. This is so important. Then God gives him gifts. The Spirit comes upon him, and then he has the gift to prophesy. You go, how do I know I'm called? There is this idea that God will give you a new heart. I mean, we're told this over and over again throughout the scriptures. God says, I'll take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, that I will give you a new heart. I'll put within you a new heart. The idea is, how do you know God is working, God is moving? The question is, do you have a new heart? Do you have a new heart? With a new heart comes a new will, new perspective, just new mindset. 
This word heart actually is like a different word than the word that's normally used uh, for heart. If you see up here, it means inner man, mind, and will. God's like, I'm going to give you a new inner man. I'm going to give you a new heart. I want to say this. You, you need to have a new heart, first and foremost, as a follower of Jesus. There's something God does within you where he gives you a new, a new inner man, new desires, new perspective. If you've not received this, I'd say receive that new heart. This is like, if you want to know, how do I know I'm called? My question is, have you received a new heart? You're like, I don't know. I would say, do you have new, new desires, new passions? Do you have a new king, a new authority over your, your heart? You know, something used to rule your heart. Now what's the, what's the thing that's like ruling and leading your heart today? And then the spirit of God comes upon him and he's prophesying. It's like, you see this so often in the book of Acts, right? It's like the Holy Spirit comes upon them and then gifts are given to them. And they might have different gifts. Some might speak in tongues, some might prophesy, some might preach and teach, some might heal. There's all these different gifts that are given. But the idea was like, there's a new heart, there's the Holy Spirit, and there's some gifts. And God still works in the same way. Like, how do I know I'm called? How do I know that God has called me out of darkness into his marvelous light? Do you have a new heart? Have you received the Holy Spirit of God? With the Holy Spirit comes some new gifts. With the Holy Spirit comes a new way of living. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen, it says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and what? Has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. As a guarantee. Does this not remind you of Saul? He anointed us. He has given us a spirit and he's given us these gifts as a guarantee. We have the spirit as a guarantee. There is this idea of how do you know you're called? Do you have a new heart? Do you have the spirit of God? Do you have gifts that come with that? In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, it says, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So each one now has received a gift. So here's the idea. If you believed in Jesus, it can't just stay there. The Holy Spirit needs to live and dwell in you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, according to Acts 1. There should be this desire, like in Acts 19. Do you remember this conversation between Paul and some newly converted Christians? He says, have you received the Spirit? And they said, we have not so much as even heard of the Holy Spirit. Some of us need to be introduced to this conversation of the Holy Spirit. We see this with Saul. The Spirit comes upon him, and he starts prophesying. And the question is like, is he a prophet? Or is that his gift? What's going on here? I'm not really sure. Is he numbered among the prophets? But we just see a gift came with this new heart. And I'll say, anytime you receive a new heart from Jesus, new gifts come. I want to say, explore those gifts. Some of you might not know yet what your gifts are, meaning there are gifts of the Spirit. Just like you're born once, and certain people are born with natural abilities, like natural gifts. When you're born again, you're born with spiritual gifts. So when you believe in Jesus, and you're given that new heart, just like at your birth, you might have natural gifts that over time they're like realized. When you're born again, you also have supernatural or spiritual gifts that are really kind of revealed over time. And we see that happening with Saul, and we see how God does that in so often in our lives. Listen, God can affirm the calling in our life with a new heart and some gifts. I would say explore that. How do you know? Put yourself in a situation where those gifts have to be used. Put yourself in a place where God has to show up. So we see like, how do I know I'm called? God's like, you're going to receive some, a new heart, and you're going to get some new gifts. You're, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and there's a new gift that comes in. You guys follow me on that? And this is what God is using. So we see him now speaking and prophesying with them. We see that proverb go out. We see his uncle say, hey, what did Samuel tell you? And he kind of kept it private. He's like, oh, I told him about the donkeys. And we're kind of curious, like, is that because he's, you know, trying to just kind of ponder in his heart? Is that a good thing? Is he lying? Is that a bad thing? It kind of leaves you in this unsure place. Like, I don't know. But we see God affirm Saul to be king with supernatural gifts, with a new heart, with a new life. And again, we say, how do you know you're called? God should give you a new heart, new spirit, new desires, new gifts. Number two, here's what we're going to see in verse 17. We're going to see the people actually confirm confirm him to be king. So God's going to use some circumstances as they say among the people, this is our king. So number two, God confirms him to be king. Let's read verse 17. Here's what it goes on to say. Now Samuel, he called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel and out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought, listen, all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans. And then of the clans uh, of the uh, Metrites was taken by Lot. And then Saul... The son of Cush was taken by Lot. So it goes to his tribe, to his clan, to him specifically. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Where's Saul? Where's the king? So they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a man still to come? 
And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. That is the best. We'll keep, we'll, don't worry. We'll get into that. Verse 23. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Isn't that cool? That's where that phrase comes from. Long live the king. Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and he laid it before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each to his own home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him, Saul, and brought him no presents. But he, Saul, held his peace. Now, I wanted you to think about this, like, this grand moment that's happening. He gathers, Samuel, the prophet, gathers all of the tribes of Israel together. And it says he's at Mizpah. And if you notice, right before he, he appoints Saul to be king, or they cast lots, we'll get into that. But right before he does that, he kind of preaches at them. Do you see what he says? He's like, you have rejected God. This is not the most, like, exciting coronation speech. Like, imagine, like, the next king of England or queen of England. Imagine, like, that process is about to happen. And it's like, this is a terrible process. Now let's begin the ceremony. Right? Like, that's what he's doing. He's like, we shouldn't be doing this. And it says at Mizpah. At Mizpah, why is that significant? Remember, if you're with us in 1 Samuel 7, that's where Samuel, at Mizpah, it says at Mizpah, Samuel called the people to repentance, and there was like this great revival that broke out. In 1 Samuel 7, there was this call at Mizpah, this town, and all the people repented and they sought God. And I think Samuel brought them together back at Mizpah. Like, remember, remember that great like, little awakening we had? We could still have that. I think he's like, giving them another chance to not let Saul be king. I really do believe that's what Samuel's doing. At Mizpah, he's basically saying, you've rejected God. God has time and time again showed up, but you still are saying, set a king over us. I'm going to give you what you want. The people should have heard this little speech and been like, you know what? He's right. God has been so good. We don't want a king. God has been our king. Why would we do this? Like that was supposed to be the response. I want to make sure you kind of understand what's happening. Like Saul's Saul's preaching at them before he gives them to be king. And it's it's crazy because this is the whole story of like the Bible and of our hearts. Like time and time we have rejected God, but God has not rejected us. He literally says, you have rejected God. And God did not reject them. We, I think, so often reject God, but God's like, I, I won't reject you, though. Like, it's, it's we're the ones. He's like, you're the ones who want this. You want a different king over you. You're going to get what you want, but this is your last chance. It's almost like Samuel is giving one last chance. Are you sure? Are you sure? And then he continued with the process. And I have to point that out. It's like, are you sure you want this? Are you sure you want something apart from God's will? Are you sure you want to give in to something that's counter to God? Are you sure you want that? Okay, let's proceed. So often God just gives us over to our desires. Again, as Romans 1 says, just gives them over to that. That's what you want, you're going to get it. But he warned them, you rejected God time and time again. It's like, here's your last chance. And so here's what we see though. We see them cast lots. Now this is weird. I'm not going to focus too much on this. So often we see this in the Bible, they cast lots. We're not sure. That's like kind of modern day flip a coin, which is so bizarre to me. Or like maybe they rolled dice, maybe they drew sticks. There's so many ideas. Like what, what did casting lots mean? It seems as if God so often uses casting lots, but that's not his desire. If you know the story of Exodus 28, the high priest had something on his breastplate called Urim and Thummim. And these were like these jewels that would light up basically when you try to seek God's will. That was like the way to seek God's will for the people of that time period. Really interesting, fascinating thing you can read in Exodus 28. But they, they casted lots. They always like did something a little bit different or what the common people did of their day. And God still uses that. And I have to point this out. God used donkeys to bring Saul to Samuel. He used that in his providence. And God will use casting lots in his providence. Like there's a still study of like, all right, let's cast lots. Tribe of Benjamin. All right, this clan. Under this clan, this person. God used that to bring to Samuel. Now, if you caught this, this is hilarious to me. Because like, all right, we know it. We know it. It's Saul. Sorry. We know it's Saul. All right, where is he? Like, where is the king? That's the question. We know there's a private anointing. They didn't even know about that. There's now this public thing happening. We know it's Saul. And they're like, where is he? Is there still a man like among us? Like, where is he at? And here's what I love. Look at verse 24 again. We'll put it up here. It's so interesting to me. Um, or verse 22. He says, so they inquired again of the Lord. Is there a, a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Now that is so fitting for so many things. Let me just point this out. First and foremost, the idea is they can't even find their own king without God's help. I have to start there. They're like, we want a king instead of God. Hey, God, like God speaks. This is God speaking in verse 22. God's like, he's among the baggage with the rest of your baggage. You know, like, it's so fitting. 
but they couldn't even find the king without God's help. This is not a good start. This is not a good start to the king. Like, they can't even find it without God's help. Like, right away, they still need God's help. Do they not get the picture? Like, you're still going to need God's help. Like, even if you get the king, you're still going to need God's help. But he will fight our battles, they thought. He will represent us to the four nations. But they're still going to need God's help. I mean, right away, this is a failure of the king. And where is he? He's hiding among the baggage. And I love that it points out he's taller than everyone. Like, head and shoulders taller. Like, just how awkward is that? Like, there's baggage over in the corner. And here's this giant of a man, like, trying to hide. It's like, oh, there's the tall guy. There he is. And he's just, like, hiding in the corner. And like, oh, this is how their, their king starts. The question is, is this humility? Probably not. This is probably a man running from the call of God on his life. He had the private ceremony. He had the anointing. He had the supernatural gifts affirm this. And here is a man hiding from the call of God in his life. This is not like, wow, he's so humble. Like, no, don't choose me. I'm just gonna hide among the baggage. Like, we can't interpret it that way. I actually personally, I think this is right. I read verse 24. Like, look at verse 24. Here's what Samuel says. He says, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. That is sarcasm. I fully believe that. Like, that is not him being like, wow, look at this guy. It's kind of like, that's the person you want, the guy that's hiding among the baggage. Because Samuel's not for this. He's telling them, like, I'm, I'm going to do this because you're asking, and God is telling me to. But you've time and time again, you rejected God. Hey, that guy that's hiding, there he is. Who's like our guy? Huh? No one's like our guy, the guy hiding. Like, this is how it's going. This is how it's starting. It's crazy. But I have to point this out. He is, still is called. God still did call him. And God still allows people to affirm that call. Now, I do think this is part of the process. I just want to point this out, not getting this too much. So often in our lives, people do have to confirm the call of God in our lives. There is something about that. There is something about people say, seeing something in you and saying, hey, I see this in you. I see what the Lord is doing in you. And I just want to confirm that call in your life. If you've ever had like a certain desire that you're like, this will take a lot of time, energy, effort, money, sacrifice. Hey, what do you think? Should I do this? And there's, there's something about having, like, bringing that desire to other people having them examine you, your character, who you are, and say, you know what, the Lord is in this, you gotta do this. Like so often we see that in the book of Acts, right? Acts 13, the disciples are praying, and the Holy Spirit says, separate to me Paul and Barnabas for the work I set before them. There's kind of this agreement among the men, like, hey, we all heard God say that we need to separate you for the work God has called you to. Another way I wanna kind of put this is, Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily. And speaking in 1 Timothy 5 in regards to elders, or pastors, or leaders. The idea was, hey, don't lay hands, don't affirm or confirm uh, anyone too quickly. Take your time. You don't be quick to choose the wrong person. So this idea of like people must be a part of this process and the confirmation of him being king. Actually, Paul says this to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1. Paul says, I remind you, Timothy, to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Through the laying on of my hands. There's just this idea of Paul's like, I, I saw this gifting in you. I affirmed it. I laid my hands on you. I prayed over you. I sent you. There's people that speak into this. Here's what I want to say. Don't try to do life alone. Try to get other people around you to speak over you, to speak into you, to affirm that call on you. I think this is biblical. I think this is healthy. I think that we need to have people kind of evaluate. I know that their means, casting lots, wasn't the right way, but God in his providence used it. All I'm trying to bring out is this greater idea of the people also had to confirm that call on his life. And I'll say this, like too often we see Christians trying to do things in a, like in isolation, alone, without people challenging their thoughts, challenging their motives, their desires, and we should have other people speak into some of these things. You follow me? There's something about the laying on of hands. There's something about, don't forget the gift that was given to you by the laying on of my hands. The idea of like people also confirmed this and spoke over you and into your life. You guys with me on that? Yeah, okay. All right, one person, thank you so much. Um, I think that's so helpful. That is the idea. And this is what the people say. They cry out, long live the king. Long live the king. I want you to see how much hope they had in, in Saul. This will be the one. Finally, we'll be like everyone else. Long live the king. And his reign is not very long. And we see, like, the David, as great as he is, we just see this idea of, like, the king will fail. I think that desire, though, of long live the, ki the, long live the king is obviously a desire of all of our hearts. Like, wh who will be that king that will not fail us? Who will be the king that will live forever? Who will be the king that will never fail, never die, never fall, never fall? Long live the king, that is King Jesus. It's this desire, though, of the heart that's being reflected. Like, we want to see the king live. We want to see life. And you see that reflected just in this desire, long live the king, they said. And here's what it says, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. When you are called, I do believe that so often God will also touch the hearts of men and women around you to affirm that call and to go with you in that call. They're like, hey, we're going to go with you, Saul. We see this. There's something about that. You need to have people say, hey, I, I, not only do I see this, but I'm going to go with you. I want to be a part of this. 
men of valor. Now, there are also another group of men. And there's other men like, I love this, because there's other men like, does anyone see what I see? Like, here's the king hiding among the baggage. Like, this king is worthless. Like, what does it say in verse 27? It says, but some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Like, how can this dude, the guy that's hiding among the baggage, how can he save us? Now, Saul, right then and there, like, he's king. He could have been like, off with their heads, right? But he doesn't. He held his peace. Now, we're going to see in just a few chapters, Jonathan, his son, is going to eat some honey. And he's going to be like, kill Jonathan, my son. All right, something's going to change dramatically in his heart. Started off pretty good. Like, people are like, they said something way worse than taking some honey. They're like, this guy, how can he do anything? And he's just like, he held his peace. Again, it started off so strong. Just a few points. I want to see how it starts off. Listen to this. Uh, he's chosen and anointed by God. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, supported by a great man of God, given gifts appropriate to royalty. He's enthusiastically supported by most of all the nation. He's surrounded by valiant men, men whose hearts God had touched, wise enough to not regard every doubter or critic as an enemy. That just because you criticize me, you're not my enemy. That was, there's wisdom there in this. There's such like a, oh, Saul, this guy, this might be the guy. Even though it's hiding among the baggage. Like, it's so, it's like the story of Balaam again. Like when you read certain characters in the Bible, you're like, I don't know if they're going to be good or bad. Uh, how's this going to play out? Now here's chapter 11. Ready? We're just going to read this all the way through. Right away, he's anointed king. And the first thing that happens is a trial. The first thing that happens is a test. And this is the third point. Trials will test the call. Trials test the call of God in our lives. All right, let's read verse one. Here we go. We can do it. You guys ready? All right. Verse one. Then Nahash, the snake, the Ammonites, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. Uh, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Verse 4, When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And then, and then the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, and he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen, and he cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. We're going to do to these oxen, we're going to do to you what we did to these oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad, obviously. Verse 10. Therefore, the men of Jabesh, they said tomorrow, so they say this now to Nahash, they said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. They're lying. Verse 11. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, uh, the morning watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two men were left together. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly." All right, here's the third point about this call of God. Trials tested the call. Trials solidified the call. Here is this guy, Nahash. His name in Hebrew literally means the serpent, the snake. And he goes to attack this, this city. This city was pr primarily made up, follow with me, of Dan and Reuben. So these are Israelites. He goes to Jabesh Gilead, and he wants to fight them. And they're like, oh, don't fight us. Uh, make a treaty with us. He's like, I'll make a treaty, but you have to pluck out your right eye. Again, how disgraceful that be all these men in a certain town walking around with one eye. It's like, what happened? Uh, we're obviously inferior to these people who want to take over. Like, it says something, right? It's like, plug out your eye. They're like, I don't think we will. And they, this is what they say. Can we just like search around and see if someone will like represent us and fight you? And he's like, yeah, go ahead. Here's why this is so interesting. Like, who would do that? Why is Nahash, the serpent, like, go ahead, find someone to fight on your behalf. Here's the idea. Stay with me. 
in Judges 21, this city, Jabesh Gilead, this was the only city that did not go to fight the tribe of Benjamin when all the other tribes went to fight. So here's the idea. Benjamin did something really evil and disgusting, the tribe that Saul came from. All of Israel went to fight against Benjamin except Jabesh Gilead. They left them in their time of need. So I guess Nahash, the idea goes, oh yeah, weren't you the group of people that didn't fight in the time of need? Good luck finding anyone to fight now for you in your time of need. That's the idea. It's like, good luck. Go ahead, find someone. Because like, it makes no sense. Why would he let them like, search for seven days for someone to fight? It's like, good luck. You didn't save them. No one's going to come to save you now. I love what one author said. Listen to this idea. I think this is absolutely true. He says, Nahash the serpent based his plan of attack on past performance. The devil continually whispers in our ears today that the past failures prevent future rescues. That past failures mean there won't be future blessing. But just as Nahash would prove to be wrong in God's economy, there's always a second chance. I love this. He based his plan of attack on past experiences. How often is it our enemy, how often does the snake, the enemy, Satan, say to us, you failed here, no one's going to come to your rescue. God couldn't forgive you. God couldn't restore you. You failed here, good luck. Good luck. And this is a great story. This is a great reminder. Like, no, no, no. God's going to come to their aid. The people are going to come to their aid. doesn't matter what you've done in the past. That does not define your future. That their past failings don't predetermine, predetermine their future success. God's like, I can change that. Even if no one came to your aid, I can change that. I love this. Because real, in reality, the, the, the nation of Israel has been like, good luck. You left us. We're going to leave you now. Just like Nahash thought. But no, no they step up and say, we're going to come on your behalf. Now, this is, uh, this is Saul's time to shine. Like, he hears the word. He gets very angry. He cuts these ox and he sends them out. He goes, hey, we're going to do to your animals uh, what we just did here if you don't come and fight. So everyone's like, oh, we're going to fight too. So they go to fight and they win. They succeed. Everyone's like celebrating. It's his first battle. They won. They're like happy. Yes, bring out the men who said this king will save us. Let's kill him. He's like, no, no, we're not going to do that. God has brought salvation. Let's not do that. Here's all this to say. He is called to be the king. How do they know? They're like looking like, yeah, we know by Lot. We know by Samuel. But we need to see the character. This was his time to step up, and he stepped up. And here's the idea. The trials really did reveal that calling. The trials really did, this war really did solidify the calling. There is something about trials that really do reveal what's in a person. It really does reveal the calling in a person. It's been said so well that Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's in them until you put them in hot water. I think there's some truth to that. The idea is like, once you put them in hot water, like what comes out? He's put in his hot water and you see what comes out. He's like, we're going to fight. I'm calling all of the nations to fight with me. And they're like, yeah, let's do it. Over 300,000, like, we're going to fight with you. And there's something about trials that reveal the character of a person. There's something about trials that also reveal the calling of a person. How do they handle it? Listen, I do think there are key moments in our life when the enemy attacks, and the question is, how are they going to respond? What are they going to do? Do they cave in? Do they give up? Do they throw the white flag and say, this is too hard? Or they say, no, we're going to fight. The point is, so often in our lives, God uses trials just to reveal to us certain things we don't maybe know about ourselves, but God knows. I love the story again of Job and of God talking to Satan, and Satan's walking around, and God's like, have you considered Job? You know, have you considered him and his righteousness? And he's like, well, there's this, this force around him. I can't get to him. He's like, okay, do whatever you want. Just don't kill him. That, the idea, though, like God knew what was in Job. Job didn't know what was in him yet. Like God knew how he would respond, but Job didn't. God's like, I'm going to allow this trial or this test so you can know what I know about yourself. I think so often there are trials and are tests that God's like, I'm going to allow this because I want you to know what I know. I want you to know that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. I want you to know that you have a strength, this reservoir does not come from yourself, but it comes from me. I want you to know something about yourself in this process. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 4.12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He goes, don't think it's strange when this fiery trial is coming to test you. Trials are there to test. This trial, it tested the call in his life. So often, God will use these trials as tests to make known, to reveal, to produce patience, to produce uh, perseverance. God will so often use these trials in our lives in this way, to reveal that calling in our lives. 
listen, it is so beautiful. There's something about being, being a parent where I go, I don't want to protect my kid from all of the trials they're going to have, like step in and intervene, and their teacher says something or something happens to the kid. Like, there are, I want to like say, what can you learn from this? What is God doing? I don't want to like stop the pain. I want to say, like, face that, like run into it. What is God trying to redeem or show or do in you? And so often we might try to like hide from it or run from it. And God's like, no, 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 like this, like you need to face this trial. Like this is so often when I show up. This is so often when I do my best work. And this trial revealed the call of God in his life so much so that the people are like, let's renew the kingdom already. Like this is our king. Like this was another, like the fourth time he's really like affirmed to be king in this way. And I want us to see that that trials so often solidify the call of God in our lives. Peter says this in 2 Peter 1. He says, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes as though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice this again. He goes, these trials are testing you twice. They're testing you, the genuineness of your faith. But not only that, trials must have a result. What is the result? It led to praise, honor, and glory. And that's exactly what happened here in 1 Samuel 11. The people are celebrating. They're offering offerings, like peace offerings to God. They're worshiping God. The people say, hey, remember those guys who said, how can this king save us? Bring him out. Let's kill him. And Saul goes, no, 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 we're not going to kill him. God has delivered us. Verse 13, and here's where we'll end. Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Notice that Saul actually got the point. Not I work salvation, but he knew to say the Lord works salvation today in Israel. The Lord, the Lord. He, he had it here. He still had it. He knew the right idea. He knew the right response. So the Lord did it. I didn't do this. The Lord did this. These trials, I cannot boast and be like, yeah, yeah, look at me. I handle these trials pretty good. It's like, no, no, the Lord did it. He can't take both. He can't boast in it. He says, look at what the Lord did today. And the only response to trials, I think, is worship. The only right response that you and I can have is resulting in praise. The people brought out peace offerings. They're praising God. And Samuel's about to give this message in chapter 12. And here's the idea. We just want to end with worship and praise. I don't know what trials you're facing. My, my point of this is don't run. Trials solidify the call of God in your life. Trials test the call of God in your life. Trials produce patience. And they do that when you really go, I'm going to count it joy. I'm going to count it all joy. I realize that these are various trials that are here to test the genuineness of my faith. God is like, I want you to see, I want you to know what comes out when you're in hot water. What comes out? Trials solidify the call in his life, and I do believe still today, trials will solidify and test the call of God in our life. Amen? Let's not run. Let's run too. And let's worship. It's the only right response. So we're going to invite the worship team back up, and we're just going to end by worshiping and praising God. Would you guys just bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's just praise the Lord and thank him and worship. So Father, we just want to say thank you. We want to say thank you for who you are, for what you've done. God, we thank you that when it comes to the call of, of you in our life, that God, we can rest that you're the one who gives a new heart. You're the one who gives the Holy Spirit. You're the one who confirms it by others. God, you're the one who brings salvation in the war. God, that you get the praise, honor, and glory. And I just ask Jesus that for those who are still questioning whether or not if they're called, they're still just in maybe confusion or frustration, that Jesus, you would make their calling and election sure. God, that you'd give them a new heart if they've not received a new heart. God, that you would fill them with your spirit. God, that you let other people speak into them and over them. God, that there would be trials that they would not run from, but they would embrace and realize it's a time for you to show up. So Lord, we just want to thank you. We just want to praise you. And God, we ask that you just be here as we worship you, that our focus and our praise would be on you, Jesus. God, we ask that in, in just the spirit of worship that we would see you. You are the true king. You are the true king of kings. That every other king or person will fail us, but long live you, Jesus, the king. We praise in your name. Amen. Let's stand and worship.